Hello and welcome back to WTF is Fio, a podcast on healthcare for professionals and students. Hello and welcome back to this bonus episode of WTF is Fio. If you have listened to our episode on AF, you may remember that we briefly discussed Flutter and Wolf Parkinson White syndrome. You may have a few questions about reentry circuits, and these are two great examples of reentry circuits. So to explain these two diseases, I've asked our heart and ECG fiend, Jack, to give us a bit more of a lowdown. So can we start off with the real basics, Jack, and talk about what an action potential is? Yeah, hi, Alex. Uh, it's an electrical impulse through a cell due to a change in charge over the cell membrane of the heart cells. It also occurs in neurons and muscles with a slightly different mode of action. Every heart cell has the ability to carry that impulse, allowing the heart muscle to contract and relax together. And then how does this relate to the conduction of these impulses through the heart? So even though the heart cells can carry that impulse and transfer it to the next cell, it's actually relatively slow. So the heart has bundles of specialised conducting tracts, which are much faster. Think of it as a motorway between various parts of the heart. The impulses are most commonly generated by the sinoatrial node traveling through the atrial heart cells and through atrial bundles to the AV node. This then sends an impulse through the ventricular heart cells as well as ventricular bundles, including the left and right bundle branches into the Purkinje fibers. The ventricular conduction pathways should be electrically isolated from the atrial pathways, which I'm sure we will talk about more a little bit later. Could you talk to us about how this then translates to the ECG? Uh, yeah, I suppose a summary of cardiac action potential is what is recorded on an ECG, allowing us to read the generalised direction of the average of the impulses in the heart. Cardiologists love to talk about vectors and velocities, but everyone else, let's just go with a general flow. I'm sure we will cover bits of ECGs in most of our cardiac episodes and might even do an ECG podcast into the future as they are hugely detailed, often subtle, and really interesting. Yeah, I think they really are interesting. I think they're quite a scary subject to approach, with a huge amount of detail and a large amount of jargon around the topic. Okay, now we've spoken about the basics of conduction. Let's define what a re-entry circuit is. Okay, so a re-entry circuit is when that electrical impulse recurrently travels in a tight circle within the heart rather than moving from the top to the bottom like a normal conduction. Every heart cell can transmit impulses, but will do so only once within a short time. It then has a cool-down time, which is described as the refractory period. And if these refractory periods in adjacent cells are too diverse, or if they are too many damaged cells with slow conduction, part of an impulse may arrive too late and be treated as a new impulse by the heart. When these cells form a circle, sending their own impulses around and around, this is when that circuit is created. So then how do these circuits apply to atrial flutter specifically? So these re-entry circuits are commonly found in the thin walls of the atria, sometimes resulting in atrial flutter. This is because the tissue within the right atrium is primed for the creation of a large re-entry circuit with an area of tissue just above the tricuspid valve the valve that lets blood flow from the right atrium into the right ventricle. 
this area of tissue naturally contains connective fibers and generally has properties that can cause it to conduct impulses that are slower than the rest of the normal cardiac tissue. For those interested, this is called the cavotricuspid isthmus. If the atrial cells around this area of tissue are able to complete their refractory period before the action potential has moved through the area of slow conduction, they are vulnerable to being re-stimulated by the same impulse, starting a large re-entry loop that goes around the internal wall of the right atrium. This is the most common type of flutter, called typical flutter, and results in an atrial rate of around 300 beats per minute. Okay. I think that makes sense. So we've got this electrical impulse that's circling around the right atrium. Also, excellent job on pronouncing cavnotricuspid isthmus. So how then is flutter different from what we see in AF? So the difference in my mind comes down to the size and how well established these re-entry circuits are. In atrial fibrillation, we have the small dispersed re-entry loops that cause this chaotic electrical activity causes the atrium to quiver or fibrillate. In flutter, there is generally one larger, more well-formed re-entry circuit. This circuit is able to fully stimulate the atrium, resulting in functional contractions, but just at a much faster rate than normal. Okay, so we've spoken about how flutter happens and how it's different from AF, but can we go back and talk a little bit about why it happens in the first place? Yeah, so it essentially happens when the re-entry loop overrides the normal sinus rhythm, creating this endless loop of stimulation. This doesn't just naturally happen, but requires the atrial tissue to be vulnerable. Vulnerability to arrhythmias is generated by underlying pathologies, such as coronary artery disease, causing tissues to become ischemic and hypoxic, making them irritable, affecting their refractory times, and then subsequently making them vulnerable to creating these re-entry circuits. The underlying pathologies are very similar to that of atrial fibrillation. And so sometimes you can see patients with atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter, with sometimes the larger macro circuit being dominant, resulting in flutter, and sometimes the circuit degenerates into smaller localised circuits, triggering the patient to revert to an underlying AF. One underlying trigger that we didn't speak about in the AF episode is that of a post-surgery or post-ablation arrhythmia. These two can leave fibrosis or scar tissue in the heart cells, and that creates the architecture for a big re-entry circuit. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So how do patients experience this? Well, flutter in general presents with similar symptoms to atrial fibrillation with palpitations, chest pains, fatigue, lightheadedness and dyspnea. And often when assessing these patients in the acute setting, they will present with a tachycardia of approximately 150 beats per minute and it will stay very, very stable. Uh, Again, as with fibrillation, it may go unnoticed and could first be seen within complications such as stroke, heart attack, and even cardiac arrest. So you said there it might go unnoticed or it might first present as an incidental finding. What kind of things are we as clinicians looking for to tears up to look for uh, flutter? So unlike AF, flutter typically presents with a regular pulse rhythm. However, they will most likely be tachycardic 
This is dependent upon how many impulses are being conducted through the ventricles at that time. But often if they are presenting to a clinician with symptoms, it will be fast. When you do your ECG, there will be absence of typical P waves and instead a sawtooth pattern is particularly prominent in the inferior leads, which are leads 2, 3 and AVF and also in lead V1, the first chest lead. This is the pattern in typical flutter, with there being some variation in the direction of the re-entry circuit, either clockwise or counterclockwise, but we will leave that for the cardiologists. Atypical flutter is where the macro or large re-entry circuit exists elsewhere in the atria, other than the classical place I described earlier above the tricuspid valve. Here, the sawtooth pattern may be more dominant in any of the leads. The other important finding to note on the ECG is the ventricular conduction rate, also described as the AV block ratio. This basically describes how many abnormal sawtooth P waves are occurring before each QRS complex. About half of the flutters conduct at a 2 to 1 ratio, resulting in the ventricular rate of 150 beats per minute. This is due to the AV node having a default conduction rate up to 150 impulses per minute. This is often mistaken for sinus tachycardia on an ECG as they look incredibly similar. Therefore, for all sinus tachycardias with a fixed rate around 150 beats per minute, you must be suspicious of flutter. In some very unwell patients, a one-to-one -one conduction ratio can occur with them trying to sustain a ventricular rate of 300 contractions per minute. This generally only happens when patients are either overly sympathetically stimulated as adrenaline allows the AV node to work faster than normally would. If there is a presence of an accessory pathway that I'm sure we'll come and talk about a little bit later, or if the patient has had a class 1A or 1C antiarrhythmic drug, which is why amiodarone and flecainide as options for rhythm control are used extremely sparingly in these patients. Interesting. I think that tip to always consider flutter in a patient with a sustained tachycardia at around 150 is a really good takeaway. So what treatment options do we have for flutter? Essentially, treatment is very similar to atrial fibrillation with hemodynamically unstable patients receiving DC cardioversion. The stable patients will receive rate or rhythm control, anticoagulation and proactively treating their underlying conditions. In recurrent flutter, that is refractory to pharmacological rate control, otherwise known as long-term flutter, there is the option of catheter ablation. In typical flutter, this is often in the form of disabling the cavotricuspid isthmus, whereas in atypical flutter, ablation can be much more challenging depending on the site of the re-entry circuit. Perfect. I think that gives a good summary of what flutter is. Now let's start talking about Wolf-Parkinson-White or WPW. So we love eponymous names in medicine. Can you tell us where that name comes from, Jack? and also give us an idea of what WPW is? Yeah, I've done a bit of research, and Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome was first described in 1930 by 
two American and one British cardiologists called Louis Wolfe, John Parkinson and Paul D. White, hence the name Wolfe Parkinson White. They did an experiment on a series of 11 healthy young people with a functional bundle branch block, an abnormally short PR interval and sometimes short bursts of tachycardia or atrial fibrillation. It is a congenital cardiac pre-excitation syndrome that arises from abnormal electrical conduction through an accessory conduction pathway, resulting in symptomatic and life-threatening arrhythmias. Firstly, it is important to differentiate Wolf-Parkinson-White pattern from Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. Wolf-Parkinson-White pattern is the term used to describe findings consistent with the classic pre-excitation pattern normally found on ECG. This includes a slurred upstroke on the QRS, known as a delta wave, and a short PR interval in the presence of a sinus rhythm. Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome is a term reserved for when the ECG pattern described is found in combination with a tachyarrhythmia and clinical symptoms of tachycardia, such as palpitations, episodic lightheadedness, presyncope, or even cardiac arrest. So you mentioned a accessory conduction pathway there. I've also heard them being called bypass tracks. Can you tell us a little bit about what these are? Yeah, so if we go back to anatomy, we know normally the heart consists of two electrically insulated units with the atria and the ventricles. These two are connected by the conduction system through the AV node and bundle of Hiss that allows for normal cardiac electrical cycles. Patients with Wolf-Parkinson-White have an accessory pathway that breaches the electrical isolation between the atria and ventricles, which can allow electrical impulses to bypass the AV node like a shortcut. These accessory pathways are congenital abnormalities, meaning that the patient has had the abnormal structure in place since development from a fetus. These accessory pathways can conduct impulses either anterograde, which is towards the ventricle, or retrograde, which is away from the ventricle, or in both directions. The majority of the pathways allow conduction in both directions, with retrograde-only conduction occurring in 15% of cases and anterograde-only conduction very rarely seen. In Wolf-Parkinson-White, the accessory pathway is often referred to as the bundle of Kent, and this can result in pre-excitation of the ventricles. Very nicely explained. I see you avoided talking about the embryogenesis of the tract. So you mentioned pre-excitation there. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Unfortunately, the bundle of Kent usually has a non-delayed conduction, so not like the short delay of the normal AV nodal conduction, and this leads to a premature ventricular depolarization. The electrical conduction characteristics of the accessory pathways can vary and depends upon factors such as the speed and direction of conduction and refractory periods. These characteristics, along with location and number of pathways, will determine how the pathway may be involved in the initiation or transmission of an arrhythmia leading to Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. This pre-excitation also bypasses the fast-conducting bundle of Hiss or Purkinje fibre system and results in early but slowly propagated ventricular depolarization, which gives rise to the ECG pattern of the short PR interval 
and the slurred start to the QRS complexion termed the delta wave. The remainder of a normal QRS obliterates this delta wave as a normal cardiac conduction catches up following an AV node delay and a fast conduction through the Purkinje fibre system. This feature of pre-excitation may be subtle or present only intermittently. Pre-excitation may be more pronounced with increased vagal tone, such as during Valsalva manoeuvres or with AV blockade therapy. In patients with retrograde-only accessory conduction, all anterograde conduction occurs via the AV node. No pre-excitation occurs and therefore no features of Wolf-Parkinson-White are seen on the ECG in sinus rhythm. This is termed a concealed pathway and these patients can still experience tachyarrhythmias as the pathway can still form part of a re-entry circuit. So that makes sense as to why the delta wave is seen on the ECG, or sometimes not seen. But how does this then result in a tachycardia? So there are two ways in which the accessory pathway can lead to Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. The pathway can either initiate and maintain an arrhythmia, or allow the conduction of an arrhythmia that is generated elsewhere. The first type occurs when a circuit is formed between the normal conduction pathway and accessory pathway. This creates an atrioventricular re-entry tachycardia, or AVRT. This comes under the umbrella term of supraventricular tachycardia, or SVT. An incorrectly timed extra electrical impulse can lead to a recurring cycle between the atria, AV node, ventricles and the accessory pathway, making a large re-entry loop. There are actually two types of AVRT, dependent on the direction of current through the accessory pathway. I'm not going to cover these now, but you can check the show notes to read up a little bit more about it. The other way an accessory pathway can lead to arrhythmias is by allowing conduction of an arrhythmia that is generated elsewhere to propagate to a portion of the heart that would normally be electrically insulated from this arrhythmia. The accessory pathway is typically composed of myocardial tissue and usually has non-delayed conduction, allowing immediate ventricular activation. This predisposes patients with Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome to sudden cardiac death, and this occurs due to rapid ventricular rates in conditions with high atrial depolarization, such as atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter. These fast ventricular rates can degenerate into ventricular fibrillation and cardiac arrest. So you mentioned that Wolf-Parkinson-White is a congenital condition. Does this mean it gets picked up fairly early? So actually, no. A significant portion is found incidentally in asymptomatic patients when they present for routine checkups with either their GP or hospitals. Although both symptomatic and asymptomatic Wolf-Parkinson-White patients are prone to developing life-threatening arrhythmias such as VF, asymptomatic patients can remain undetected and therefore may miss any chance for intervention. Alarmingly, up to 50% of Wolf-Parkinson-White patients present with cardiac arrest have previously been asymptomatic. It has an estimated prevalence of 2 to 4 per 1,000 So that's a much higher prevalence than I initially thought it was, actually. So what might help us look for a patient with Wolf-Parkinson-White? 
So the incidence of patients with wolf parkinson white pattern progressing to an arrhythmia is thought to be about 1% to 2% per year. And wolf parkinson white syndrome prevalence peaks from age 20 to 24. Uh, the clinical features that you'll often see are palpitations, chest pain, shortness of breath, and then the more serious conditions you could possibly see them in is like cardiogenic shock, collapse, VF arrest, and of course, not to count out patients with AF or an undiagnosed SVT. Okay, so we've got a patient who's 20 to 24 who's presenting with some chest pain and shortness of breath. How are we actually going to, have to diagnose Wolf Parkinson White? So to start your investigations, you're going to do a resting ECG, looking for that short PR interval of less than 120 milliseconds, or three little boxes on most ECGs. The slurred upstroke on the QRS, and often they will present with T-wave abnormalities, a dominant R in V1 and V2 and they may have some pathological inferior Q waves. Um, but just remember, these are not diagnostic of previous MI in the presence of Wolf-Parkinson-White. A symptomatic patient's ECG is likely to show atrioventricular reentry tachycardia, or AF. In those patients with an AVRT, the reentry impulse sometimes travels back up through the accessory pathway and therefore the delta wave will not be present and therefore you will not have the classic pre-excitation seen in the standard Wolf-Parkinson-White ECG. So Wolf-Parkinson-White came up quite a lot when we were researching for our podcast on AF and you've mentioned it a couple of times during this podcast. Why are they so intertwined and what's the importance with these two conditions? It's often talked about um, interlinked. Uh, they're not actually an interlinked condition. It's more that if they are both present, is actually very dangerous. So AF causes the rapid irregular QRS complexes with a variable QRS duration. And in Wolf-Parkinson-White, that very rapid ventricular response facilitated by the additional pathway can degenerate into cardiogenic shock due to the insufficiency of the unfilled ventricles contracting. This unsustainable rate often deteriorates into ventricular fibrillation. Thanks for that explanation. So how are we treating these Wolf-Parkinson-White patients? As long as the Wolf-Parkinson-White is regular and there is no signs or history of AF, you can treat it similarly to other SVTs. It is dependent on the hemodynamic stability of the patient and unstable patients receive a synchronised DC shock whereas stable patients can receive antiarrhythmics that prolong the accessory pathway, such as sotalol, amiodrone, flecainide, and procanamide. Drugs that shorten the refractory period are contraindicated, such as digoxin. Remember the treatment of AF with Wolf-Parkinson-White is different. Treatment with AV nodal blocking drugs, such as adenosine, calcium channel blockers, and beta blockers, may increase conduction via the accessory pathway with a resultant increase in ventricular rate and possible degeneration into VT or VF. Again, in the hemodynamically unstable patient, urgent synchronised DC cardioversion is required. And in the stable patient, medical treatment options include 
brocanamide and flecainide, although DC Kylio version may be preferred. This is often a specialist knowledge, so consult your trust guidelines, and if you have any doubt, consult your cardiology team prior to treatment. That makes sense. I've often heard that adenosine is a no-no in wolf Parkinson white with AF, but it's nice to know actually why that is. So what about long-term treatment for wolf Parkinson white Ongoing treatment depends on whether the individual is symptomatic. If so, they will often be offered catheter ablation on the accessory pathway, otherwise pharmaceutical treatment with antiarrhythmics such as flecainide, sotalol and amiodarone may be prescribed. Asymptomatic patients will be risk stratified and only some will be recommended ablation, mainly if they have a specialised job such as an airline pilot or other particular safety issue such as marathon runners. Amazing, Jack. I think that about wraps up all my questions. Thank you so much for all that info. It's always interesting to take a closer look at what's going on in these conditions. You're welcome. I really enjoy researching these topics and Wolf Parkinson White is one of those really interesting topics that I've seen in my practice and I've understood parts of and I've now come to research to really understand it. This was WTF is Fio. Catch us next week where we're going to start talking about croup. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to reach out on Twitter or Instagram if you have any comments or want to request what we do a podcast on next. Thank you.